This message first aired on the radio on May 5th, 2004. Well, we're coming into the end of the second epistle of the Corinthians today, and we hope that we'll manage to complete it. We will proceed directly after second Corinthians into the book of Galatians, and by way of just comment uh, about the future prospect, I do think that the affairs of my life at this time and the uh, lessons that I've been learning uh, in the laboratory of God, which is the uh, circumstances of life, are uniquely preparing us for a study of the book of Galatians. And I have some ambivalence in the matter because Second Corinthians has been a great blessing to me. I hope that as I have been blessed in the study of this book, that some of that blessing rubs off and gets out. As one preacher who taught me a very great deal about preaching told me, the problem is never working a message up, but praying it down and getting it out. And of course, that's the way it is in teaching this wonderful epistle, this autobiographical epistle of Second Corinthians, partly an autobiography of the Apostle Paul. Well, he's continuing in his defense, and today we're in the end of chapter 12. We begin our study today at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, and we'll see the apostle here making more of his defense and admonishing the Corinthians in some matters, and we have his apostleship to take up, and we're going to look a little bit at what it meant to be an apostle. We're going to look a little bit at signs and wonders and mighty deeds today, and hopefully we will put to rest uh, this preposterous uh, notion that the sign gifts operate today in any way. And I say preposterous because indeed it is preposterous. It's inconsistent with the scripture. It misleads many, and it is the calling card of many who would do damage to the faith and would build a fellowship based on a ridiculous assessment of what the sign gifts are. We'll come to that in just a moment, but let's begin by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I am become a fool in glorying, you have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Now here the apostles laying it out as plain as he can. This is something that is emphatic. He says, I have become a fool in glorying. Of course, he glories in his infirmities. He glories in the kind of resume that exemplifies the sufferings of Christ. He says, now I've become a fool like you fellows are. I've become like those who boast in Corinth, those who walk as men. I've become a fool in glorying, but you made me do it. He says, you made me do it because you make me commend myself to you, though I'm an apostle and you're the proof of my work. And he says, you should be commending me. He said, I ought to have been commended of you or by you. You should be commending me, not me commending myself to you. But for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Now here he says, look, I'm not behind any of the super-duper apostles. We could actually translate that, this where he says very chiefest apostles. In, in modern lingo, we could actually translate it, the super-duper apostles, and uh, we'd be okay with that. But apostolic work is apostolic work. The whole idea of a super-apostle is sort of a Corinthian idea that somehow there were the eminent among the eminent. It's, this is such a Gentile thing. Who's the greatest? This is such a Gentile thing, and the Corinthians are exhibiting that Gentile aspect. 
that Gentile character which they have, the superabundance of evil that carries over that old nature that carries over. Now what's the argument of the Apostle Paul here except this? He said, I'm nothing behind any of the apostles. I'm just as apostolic as anybody could be. I am not an inferior as an apostle to others. And of course he now is going to conclude, I mean this argument is, if I'm not inferior to any apostle, verse 13, then what is it in wherein you are inferior to other churches? Now he's saying, it's important to you that I'm not inferior as an apostle because that means that as a church, you are not inferior the one I founded. And of course this was a great contention at the time here of the writing of Second Corinthians, and it's a contention throughout the New Testament. And the contention is that there's a headquarters church in Jerusalem. Now there is no headquarters church at Jerusalem. There's a dispensational church at Jerusalem. That is to say this. There can only be one Jerusalem church because of a consequence of time and circumstance. But Jerusalem was not a super church. It was not an authoritative church. In fact, they did not have the whole truth. And when the whole truth came to them, they willfully, in Jerusalem, refused to walk in the whole truth. And we'll see that. Now that's going to tip us off to our great study of Galatians, so we don't need to treat that right now here, except for you to know that there is this thought going on in Corinth that somehow we've come, and, and I think what this implies and what this tells us is that after the Apostle Paul came, in came others, of course that's a normal thing, in came others, very possibly from Judea, from Jerusalem, certain Judaizers. We don't know who the identity is of those who are against the Apostle Paul, except that some of them are saying they're from Peter, and others of them are saying they're of Christ. And so we can infer from that that there is at least some contention that this is a little bitty, teeny tiny, 18-inch apostle that you've got. You've got some kind of 18-inch apostle, whereas we've got these uh, huge apostles, we've got the Mike Ditkas of apostles, or we've got the super apostles, and you've got this little tiny apostle. And we don't really respect your little tiny apostle. And the apostles that we know, they do marvelous, wondrous works, which of course the Apostle Paul also did, but maybe not in the presence of those who came after he was present with them. And we can suspect accurately that they came after the apostle left, because if he was present there, he would have whooped up on him like he promises to do when he's present again. So we'll develop that a little bit more as we come through the rest of the 12th chapter here. But the general argument that he posits in 11, starts in 11 and finishes in 13, is twofold. One, I am not behind any apostle, and two, you are not behind any church. And those two things are inextricably linked. That is why the apostle defends his apostleship. He's defending his apostleship so that the churches that he has founded, and he needs to, so that the churches that he's founded don't get overthrown like the church in Jerusalem was overthrown. And that danger, friends, that great danger of the Judaizing of the churches of God is every bit as dangerous and imminent today as it was in apostolic times. Now let's look a little bit about apostolic times when we come to verse 12. And now today, if you think the Pentecostal charismatic gifts are operating today, if you think signs and wonders and mighty deeds are happening today, then you're in for a good lesson here at BibleStudy.net. Listen very carefully and you'll find out why they aren't and why they won't 
and then you can quit fooling yourself and you can quit believing lies that they are because not only are they not evidently and we can see evidently with our eyes that they are not happening but secondarily we can see that it's the grace of God and the great wisdom of God why they aren't happening but they were happening with the Apostle Paul and they happened in Corinth here we are in verse 12 truly he says the signs now he's defending his apostleship and he's saying I'm not behind super duper apostles I'm just as super duper an apostle as there is truly the signs of an apostle verse 12 were wrought among you in all patience he says now I brought the signs of an apostle with me in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds and verse 13 so what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches and the answer is in nothing now he's going to make a little caveat by way of ironical introduction to another theme that he maintains but we'll look at the end of verse 13 in just a second but let's look back here now at what he says the signs of an apostle were wrought among you the signs of an apostle and then he talks about signs wonders and mighty deeds so what purpose did signs wonders and mighty deeds serve they were the signs of an apostle they were a sign of the apostolic ministry now let's look you, you may say well others had those signs too that's correct others had some of the signs apostles had all of the signs and wonders in fact let's go look at an area of scripture that is under much controversy but is very sensible and is very clear and is part of the scripture Let's look at Mark chapter 16 and let's read a letter to somebody else. Let's read some instructions to somebody that isn't you and that isn't me. In Mark 16, we look beginning in verse 17. We see this in verse 17. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out demons. They shall speak with new languages. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, those are the signs that will follow them that believe. Now, we've looked at this before, and we take it very evidently, and we understand it very well. But let me say before we look at this that Mark 16, misunderstood by many, has by some been said not even to be part of the Scripture. Well, I'm not among that company, I'll tell you that. This is part of the scripture. The evidence of the manuscripts is overwhelming. And by the way, I believe there's direct textual evidence that this is also part of the scripture. If you're interested in those kind of things, Ivan Panyon did a marvelous work of Bible numerics, uh, not to find secret codes, mind you. That's ridiculous. But what he did instead was he looked at Bible numerics and gematria to see the sequences of these numeric schemes in the text as it were the fingerprint of God not to find hidden meaning but in his mind to satisfy himself that the text was truly the text of the scripture and one of the areas that he worked in is Mark 16 and his uh, work is impressive another area that he worked in was Matthew chapter 1 again very impressive work 
which I could not duplicate, nor do I care to explain it in any detail. At BibleStudy.net, we're confident that the majority text of Scripture from which the King James Version is translated is the Scriptures of God, and we do have sufficient capability today and have for some time to look at the text and see what they really mean and update the English as we teach it and also translate the original language as we need to. Uh, Well, now, so this is the scripture, and here are these two verses, these signs, uh, verse 17 and 18, these signs shall follow them that believe. I take a two-step approach to this. Maybe a three-step approach, we might say. Uh, Two observations and a conclusion. Uh, Number one, the scripture says, these signs shall follow them that believe. These signs shall follow them that believe. So that's, that's number one. It does say that. Number two, I believe. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for 29 years. I know others who also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, these signs do not follow me. Neither do they follow you. These signs don't follow anybody that believes today. And so I conclude from those observations that this must be about somebody else, because it's not about me. And by the way, my friend, it is not about you. So who is it about? Well, we also read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the signs of an apostle were worked by the apostle Paul. Well, did he cast out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now let me say this. There are those today who cast out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's absolutely true. But this is a package of gifts. This is a package of operations. This is a package of miraculous things, signs and wonders. And here they all operate with an apostle. Well, what else? Do they, they shall speak with new languages. Of course, this happened at Pentecost and continued to happen until tongues ceased. When did tongues cease? Well, when that which is perfect is come, that which was partial was done away with. When that which is perfect is come is when the scriptures were completed, that which is mature. As we looked when we saw in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, when I was a child, I spake as a child, the Apostle Paul using himself as an analogy and pointing out that early in his life he spoke in these things, but he anticipated that these things would cease, and indeed in his life these signs actually ceased. They shall take up serpents. Well, they take up here now poisonous creatures. The Apostle Paul did that at Malta. He took up a a, a viper bit him, and he wasn't hurt at all. It says, if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. We don't know how many deadly things the Apostle ate and drank. You can imagine how many. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And, of course, the Apostle did that not only by the laying on of his hands did they recover, but people would grab his tool apron, his tent-making apron, and whoever touched it would also recover. So the signs of an apostle are the signs that follow them that believe. And early in the Christian church, there was a great contest about who was an apostle. That's why the apostle Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians about false apostles, which are a subset of the false brethren. Now, these signs will follow them that believe. These signs did not follow the Apostle Paul. We can also look at Hebrews chapter 2. When we look at Hebrews 2, we see in the third and fourth verse something very interesting. We see the generational transmission of the faith. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we see it elsewhere in Scripture. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, The things which you have seen and heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. There we see a four-generational passing on of Scripture from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to men he found faithful who were able to teach that fourth generation. Now here in the book of Hebrews, it says uh, in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And the great salvation is more than simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's greater than that, and thou shalt be saved. There's more to it than that, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. But as the Lord said, I have many things to tell you, but you can't hear it now. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll lead you into all truth. So at the first it began to be spoken of by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. And so now we see at least three generations here. We see us, them that heard him, and the Lord. And of course, when the Lord told the apostles, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will lead you into all truth. All truth had to be delivered to the apostles for that statement to be true. And all truth was delivered by the time of the end of the apostolic ministry. We have a few more things to say about this when we talk about the signs of an apostle, and we'll do that in just a minute. Stay tuned. This will help you out, and it will keep you from a lot of trouble in your Christian life, my friend. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. Be right back with you. Well, we continue on to look at the signs and wonders of an apostle, this theme of the signs and wonders of an apostle, which the Apostle Paul enjoyed. Uh, before we launch again, back to the second chapter, Hebrews, verses 3 and 4, and a couple of other notations of Scripture, let me just say that we are looking for a Spanish-speaking translator of our broadcast here at BibleStudy.net. And if you would like to help us, if you speak Spanish and you're a good enough speaker, and you understand the broadcast and you enjoy it, and you'd like to render it into the Spanish language, we certainly would like to hear from you. Go to the website at www.biblestudy.net. Go to the comment section and send an email, and we'll let you try out for that. We do have opportunities to place Spanish-language programs on Spanish-language radio. Well, now here on Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4, it tells us that how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard. So we have now the Lord, them that heard him, who were led into all truth, that apostolic generation, and then us, those who receive the apostles' doctrine as it is fulfilled in the written word of Scripture. Now it tells us, verse 4, here's what God was doing. God also bearing witness... Now, God became the underwriter, or the witness, of the apostles. God had to underwrite who the apostles were. Imagine yourself in the early church. Various people uh, calling themselves apostles. Some of them false apostles, some of them true. Some of them circulating false letters, as if epistles. We read about that in the scripture. We read about both false apostles and false epistles. The apostle warning the believers... There are false apostles. Don't receive a letter, even if it looks like it's been written by us, even if it's been plagiarized or if it's been counterfeited, as if from us. You have to be able to judge the content. If anybody doesn't bring the teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that I have brought to you, let him be anathema. Well, God didn't just leave the apostle with these arguments. 
he underwrote the apostle, he underwrote all the apostles, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, God bearing them witness with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So we see here signs and wonders and diverse miracles, which are works of power, just exactly what the apostle says. Here are the signs of an apostle, signs and wonders and mighty deeds, or dunamis, works of power, or powers. I don't know why it is, friends, that this isn't more pointedly taught today in the chaotic conditions of the faith that we have. When I visit overseas, and and many of you know that I've spent a lot of years visiting in East Africa, English-speaking part of the British Commonwealth, and that portion of Africa East Africa is the East African Union of Uganda, Tanzania, or Tanzania as it's called, and Kenya. And when I visit the churches, and I'm very welcome in the churches, very many different churches, by the way, Anglican churches, Presbyterian churches, Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, and even a few independent churches. Very welcome there to come in and preach. And most of the churches where I preach, there is a very large, what I'll call, Pentecostal element. Now, this is just a group of people, most of them not properly taught, most of them getting mistaught by contact with contaminated American Christianity and contaminated British Christianity and contaminated German Christianity, whereby they are taught to both raise money through these preposterous means. We'll get to that in a moment here in 2 Corinthians 12, because the apostle is not done with the issue of money, and neither am I, therefore. And also, this ridiculous notion that the sign gifts are operating today. And, you know, I call people out and I say, listen here, you don't have any sign gifts. They're not operating today. You're not speaking miraculously in a foreign language. Otherwise, why would we have to ask for somebody that can do a Spanish version of BibleStudy.net? You're not miraculously gifted in language. You're not speaking in some other tongue. There is no language of angels. The language of men and angels are the same languages. It's all bogus. It's all baloney. It's, as one of my friends calls it, baby talk. It's nonsense. And these things are not happening. They're just not happening. And, by the way, there's a very good reason that not only are they not happening, but they're not going to happen. God will bring in some signs and wonders when he turns back and takes the nation of Israel off the shelf that he's placed them on. But here the apostle worked the signs of an apostle. It is every bit as important that the signs of the apostles are not operating today as it was important that they operated in the day of the apostle Paul. So this now is part of his credential. He says, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. Now why does he need to write that? I believe he needs to write that in this epistle because there are those who have come in against whom, in part, he now is charging and admonishing and inveighing against that have come in and did not see his signs and wonders. And of course, even if and when they do see them, they won't accept him because no one has ever come to faith based on signs and wonders. Now he says, so what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches? Verse 13, and as I said before, I think he's implying here that somebody's teaching them, part of the schism, that they are an inferior church, 
because they don't have super apostles and uh, we come from a place where the super apostles come from. And I know just exactly how that kind of thing works. People today can't say they come from a place of super apostles, although they do say that. But they say, we come from this part of the country or that part of the country, or our man went to this school or that school, and he's got this thing or that thing. And they create a schism based on men. Well, that hasn't changed. But at the time of the early church, they based their schism against the apostle by denying his apostleship And those who acknowledged his apostleship, who also opposed him, called him some kind of second-class apostle. Now he says, so therefore you're not behind any other church. You don't need to go get some kind of other church dominating your church. And it's always been the case, by the way, friends, that one church wants to dominate another church. And it's always been the case that God doesn't approve of that. There's no headquarters in Christianity except in heaven. The headquarters is the quarters where the head is. And that is the third heaven, the paradise of God where our Lord Jesus Christ is. We all have the same head of the church. And if we all have the same head of the church, then no church is a junior church. Maybe we could call about a sister church. I guess I don't have a real problem with a sister church, although why don't we call it a brother church or a church of brothers. But I do have a big problem with the branch offices that are created and have been created throughout Christendom or Christian history. It it was unbiblical at the outset. It's unbiblical today. And no church started by Jesus Christ, where he is the risen head and raises up his own standards, no church is inferior to other churches. That's just not the case. Now, he says, well, except maybe this. Maybe you're inferior. Maybe you think you're inferior. And, of course, he's using irony now in the middle of the 13th verse. Except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Now he says, well, one thing. Now here's one difference you have from other apostolic churches. And that is that they support the apostles. Other apostolic churches support the apostles. Certainly the church at Jerusalem supported the apostles. For example, other churches support the apostles. Whereas I was not burdensome to you, I worked for free. Uh, Maybe that makes you behind. And of course, that's a a point, and, and and a real good point, especially to the Corinthian church. And let me make this observation. If you'll notice here that the apostle is not burdensome to a church that is wealthy. Other churches that are not wealthy supported the apostle. He wasn't a burden to them either, but they also supported the apostle. So when we come into the second section that we're going to take up today, we come into 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 14, through the first verse of the 13th chapter, uh, we're going to see, for example, that the Corinthians were wealthy, and it's almost as if, therefore, Paul and Titus wouldn't take anything from them, because with their wealth came their carnality. Uh, Now, the apostle ironically and sarcastically really says, forgive me this wrong that I didn't burden you. Of course, that's tongue-in-cheek. Now, verse 14. We'll just read here a little bit. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought to not lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Now, the apostle introduces this section, and he starts it with, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. Now, he doesn't say, Behold, I'm coming to you the third time, as so many misread this. He says, Behold, the third time, I am ready to come to you. 
Now, does that mean that the apostle came to them three times? Well, yes and no. We look at 13 verse 1. He says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Then he says in verse 2, he says, I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. Now, he's both foretelling and saying, if I were present the second time. So, you, you don't foretell your second visit if you've had it. And uh, you don't say, as if I was present the second time, if you were there. So, the apostle was there one time when he founded the church. So, how do we say, well, I'm ready to come to you the third time? Well, he was ready to come to them the second time when he wrote 1 Corinthians. You say, well, now, how, does it, how do you answer verse 13, 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you? Well, I mean, how could he come the third time if he didn't come the second time? Well, his point is this. I came to you the second time with my letter. This is the third time I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you by letter. Now, in case they got that confused, he says in the very next verse, if I were present with you the second time. So he's talking about coming to them in a different way that he's talking about physically being present with them. He distinguishes the two things. And he said, this is the third time I'm ready to come to you. And then he says, this is the third time I am coming to you. But he's coming to them by way of epistle. And of course, they don't like that. Those who oppose him there don't like that. They say, well, he comes by letter, and he's a real tough guy in letter, but he's never here in person, and, well, you know, he's not much. He's not all that, whatever, whatever. The apostle says, listen, I don't want to come to you in person until you've repented, because I don't want to have to come into Corinth and open up a can of spiritual whoop-ass on the church in Corinth. That's what he's saying. That's Texas talk, by the way. Now, he's saying this. How is it that you are expecting me to act like your child? He says here, he says, I'm not after your stuff. He said, I don't seek your things. That's what it means. He says, I'll not be burdensome to you. I do not seek your things, but I seek you. That is to say this, I am not a guy who's after your stuff. I'm a guy who is after you. I'm a guy who's looking out for you. Now, why would he say it? He says it because there are those who are after the Corinthians' stuff. Now, here I am. I'm, I'm preaching on the radio. It's on the Internet. I don't know who's hearing it, but I do know this. In the churches today, there are plenty of those guys who are after your stuff. I'm not after your stuff. I don't want your stuff. I'm after you. I'm after you, brother, you, sister, to tell you the truth. Now, I don't know how to make that plain, except just to preach the Word of God. The Apostle also did not know how to make it plain, but he had to say it. Because there are so few, every man seeks his own things, there are very few that are seeking the things of God. That was true in the Apostles' day, it was true the day after the Apostles' day, and it's just as true today. So he's telling the Corinthians, look, I'm not after your stuff. I'm not going to be a burden to you. I'm after you. After all, children don't lay up for their parents, parents lay up for their children. And he's pointing out, look, I'm a parent to you in this sense. I'm the one who fathered the assembly, as it were. I'm the one who started your Corinthian assembly. I'm the one who is teaching you. And I have laid up and am spending and willing to be spent for you. That's what he says, verse 15. I'll very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. He points out this, not only am I willing to spend my resources to reach you, I'm willing to spend my time, that is to say be spent, he's willing to spend his resources and his time for their sakes, 
even though it means, and he understands it means, that the more that he loves them, the more that he does for them, the more that he exerts himself on their behalf, the less they love him. That perverse nature of carnal Christian churches. Now, he goes on and he really rubs this in. He's saying, not only did I behave this way, but those who follow me also behave this way. Verse 16, But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. And now he, he just says what's being said against him. That he's crafty and he tricked them. He says, well, wait a minute now. I didn't burden you, and so is that is that how I was crafty and tricked you? By not taking something from you? Verse 17, did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? No. The apostle points out he's got clean hands. He's showing here he's got clean hands. He didn't take anything from them, and he wouldn't take anything from them. Why wouldn't the apostle take anything from the Corinthians, and yet he freely received from the Philippians and the Macedonians and others? Because the Corinthians are so carnal, and there is so much trouble inside that church against him. It's interesting, verse 16, where he says, Being crafty, I caught you with guile. I knew a wicked man got loose in a church. They used to use that verse to justify his guile. Of course, he was exposed, finally, and is in total disgrace today as a serial sexual predator. Well, he, he says, Now the apostle says, Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? No, not even Titus. Now he said, I desired Titus. With him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Or walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? And here's a lesson. Titus walked the same way the apostle walked. You want to talk about the apostolic tradition, quit looking for signs and wonders and start walking in the grace that Paul walked. Quit taking money. That'll stop all the signs and wonders. This is John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. There's more good things as we round out the epistle of 2 Corinthians. Now the apostle comes into the 19th verse. He said, Do you Corinthians think we're making an apology of ourselves to you? We are speaking before God in Christ. We do all things, dearly beloved, for your building up. He says, We are looking to build you up. Everything we do is to build you up. I'm writing this letter to build you up, he points out. He says, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 13, Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord has given me to edification and not to destruction. He said, I'm even writing this in advance to you so that you'd be built up, so that you'd have time to repent. Because he says in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 12, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as I would, that I shall be found unto you such as you would not that I'll be some kind of guy you don't want around. Lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, and tumults. He says, I don't want to see all that. He knows it's going on. He, He gives that list because those are the very things that are going on in Corinth. And he says, I don't want to find that when I come. He says, that's what I'm afraid of. In verse 21, he says, lest when I come again, My God will humble me among you that I shall bewail many which have sinned already or before sinned. Which have already, which have before, literally before sinned. In other words, I don't want to come and deal with a bunch of sin that's already happened. It's one thing to deal with sin as it happened. It's a whole other thing to try to deal with sin that's already happened and has been 
refused to be repented of. That's a whole other level of seriousness. And he says, and I don't want to have to deal with those who have already sinned or have before sinned and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Now notice what he says there. He's talking about these that oppose him, and he talks about they haven't repented of the uncleanness and fornication and general badness. And it's interesting here, lasciviousness, general evil. It's interesting here to me that fornication always pops up in this list because those who oppose the apostle inevitably are involved in two things, covetousness and fornication. The Lord Jesus Christ told the Pharisees, you're covetous. Now we come to the 13th chapter, the first verse, which really belongs to this section. He says, this is the third time I've come to you. We treated that. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. He said, this is it. He said, two or three witnesses is what establishes things. This is the third time there's no more establishment going on. Everything has been established. The witness is, number one, I was there. Number two, I wrote you a letter. Number three, I wrote you this other letter. Now he says, I tell you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. We treated this. This has to do with his second physical presence, which will end up being, by the way, the fourth time that he comes to them. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I'm not going to spare. That's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you words is not weak, but is mighty in you, for though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, we also weak in him, but shall live with him by the power of God toward you. He says, now those of you that are looking for some kind of proof of my apostleship, and we'll call them Corinthians come lately, you don't really want to see me in that way where I have to prove my apostleships because I will not spare you. He says, I'm not going to, I'm sparing you now by writing to you, but when I come, I won't spare you. He'll come with a rod. It will be a very difficult time indeed. And there should be great fear in the Corinthians. After all, during the apostolic age, this kind of sin brought on sudden and instant death. And, they, and there are plenty of reports about it when Ananias and Sapphira died and when the apostle also wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep many have died due to their sin now when the apostle comes in in power uh, those works of power you know people want to see the works of power but they don't go look at what some of those works of power are and I assure you if the apostolic gifts were operating today our churches would be filled with piles of dead bodies. Piles and piles of dead bodies starting in the pulpits. So here now he points out, but we're weak in Christ, our purpose is to edify, I would rather not have to come to you and deal with you like this. Why don't you just believe the scriptures? Friend, this is a little picture of the judgment seat of Christ if you care to look at it. Why not just believe the scriptures Repent from your sins, walk in the light, so that you're not ashamed at the rendezvous of our Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. If you think apostolic authority was really something in that day, and you do get a sense of it, that is nothing compared to the authority of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat. And we ought to be thinking about that period of time, and we ought to be fearing, because that can be an awful, awful time if we haven't repented from our sins if we aren't walking in the grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost, to which we are commended at the end of this epistle. We go here now to verse 5, which is the application of what these need to do. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves, or prove your own selves. Another place, the Scripture says, prove all things. Well, what needs to be proven is not the gifts of the Apostle. The Apostle Paul doesn't need to be proven to the Corinthians. They seek the kind of proof about him that they seem to want. And I I think it's disingenuous that they're seeking of proof that the Apostle is really an Apostle. He turns the tables here and he says, prove your own self. Examine your own self. Prove yourself. Prove whether you're in the faith. Now, this doesn't question your... He's not telling them to question their faith. He's saying to demonstrate. You prove that you are in the faith. Now, how are they going to prove they're in the faith? Well, frankly, the way that these guys could prove that they're in the faith is to do just exactly what the apostle said. That's how they prove they're in the faith. Now we know they're following the apostle's doctrine. They just do what the apostle says. Today, how can you prove yourself? Well, the Lord tells you this. Give diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's one way you can prove yourself. And you can walk according to the scripture and prove your own self before God and man that you are in the faith. The apostle isn't the one that needed proving. The apostle isn't the one that needed to demonstrate anything. He'd already done all that. It's these Corinthians, really, that are being tested. Interesting how they pose a test to Paul, and they are the ones truly being tested. He says, Don't you know in your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? Now, I don't like the word reprobate in its current connotation used here. This is simply the word disapproved. This is where the apostle said, After I've preached to others, my concern is that after I've preached to others, I would find myself disapproved. And, of course, the idea there is the end of his Christian life, after which he appears at the judgment seat of Christ. He knew that he could be disapproved of the Lord in the way, not as to pertaining eternal life, but as pertaining to his Christian life and the way he conducted it. And he was concerned in 1 Corinthians 9 that he would not be disapproved, And, of course, we all should be concerned that we are approved of the Lord and not disapproved by the Lord. And that's what the Apostle says the Christian life is about. It's about demonstrating yourself approved unto God and thereby being able to commend yourself to the conscience of men. And there are these threshold times where God's approval is seen, and schism is one of those times. When schism occurs, they have to occur so that they that are approved would show up. Now he says, don't you know that except Jesus Christ is in you, you are disapproved? But I trust that you will know that we are not disapproved. So one way that the Corinthians can demonstrate that they are not disapproved is to acknowledge that the Apostle Paul is not disapproved. And really he's commending them to stay with the faith and to stay with him and the apostolic company, and therefore they will not find themselves in that quarrelsome company of schismatic types that apparently has gotten loose in Corinth, and which we'll find when we study Galatians, by the way, had gotten loose all over the place in Christendom. Now he says in verse 7, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do that which is honest, though we be as disapproved. He says, now listen here, I don't want you to do evil, not to demonstrate our approval. We're already approved by God. 
even if we're disapproved, we want you to not do evil so that you will do that which is the honest thing, or that which is the honorable thing, or that which, by the way, is of great value. That's what this means where he says you should do the thing that is honest. Do those things or that thing which is honest. This is the thing of great value. This is how we're to provide things honest in the sight of God and man. Things of great value. For we, he says, verse 8, can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. He said we're on the side of truth. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the truth. And that's his point. Now we come to wrapping up the final piece of this epistle. He says, We are glad when we are weak. And the, the King James translation here, not the best. For we are glad when weak we're strong. Now, the, the King James Version says, When we are weak and you are strong. But actually, he's just talking about the weak, strong principle. He's not saying we're glad that we're weak and you're strong. He says we're glad that when, when there is weakness, there is strength. And, of course, why is he glad? Well, because he sees the weakness of the Corinthians. And he says, And this also we wish, even your perfection. Now, this perfection that is talked about in the Scripture, many people mistake and call this sinlessness. It's not about sinlessness. It's about purity. It's about blamelessness. In this particular case, it is about blamelessness. It, it, this is not about growing up. This has to do, in this sense... Uh, there is a time when the word perfection has to do with maturity, but this one has to do with getting rid and purifying themselves of the present evil, dealing with the issue that is extant in their lives together. And that has to do with individuals confessing their sins, and uh, it has to do with uh, others sorting out their minds, but it, it is a movement and it is a cleansing that is necessary in the church corporate. And he says, here you do, you qualify for strength, because you guys are so weak. That's his point. His point is, isn't it a wonderful thing that when I'm weak, that I'm strong? Because that now he's pointing out their weakness as a church in falling into this schism, into these errors. Indeed, they're on the brink of rejection of the apostle himself. And he says, here's the good news. There's grace for this. When you're weak, they're strong. And this is when the grace of God comes in. And uh, as the Lord told the apostle, my strength is made perfect in weakness, or my strength grows up and becomes quite mature in weakness. So certainly the Corinthians qualify because their weakness is very evident here. And he says, we're looking for you uh, to expunge your evil. That's what he means by perfection in Second Corinthians 13.9. He says, now therefore I write these things being absent, Lest being present, I would use sharpness. We've treated this in verse 10. According to the power which the Lord has given me to edification and not to destruction, he carries on his argument until the final few words of this epistle. And there we get a good sense of his urgency. Now he feels like he's made his statement. He's repeated himself over and over again. He's pleading with them. He's telling them, listen, I don't want to come like this. Do deal with yourselves. We don't know if they did or not. We don't know. We don't have a good uh, understanding of how they actually responded to this. My experience tells me they probably didn't do so well. But the fact that this is part of the canon of Scripture is because it's held out that we can have ourselves obedient churches. We can please the Lord in our churches if we will follow this advice. We don't know what the Corinthians did. Hard to tell. I'm not optimistic, but then well, why should I be? 
Now he says in verse 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Finally, brethren, fare thee well. Do well. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Now here he talks about the God of comfort. Of course, here he's now addressing those brethren that truly listen to him. Be of one mind. It is so important for a church to seek one-mindedness. Not majority opinion. Not a simple majority. Not a two-thirds majority. It's good for a local church to be of one mind. That is to say, of one conclusion. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Tradition of the Mideast. I don't think we have holy kisses in America. All the saints salute you. And now here, verse 14, I want to just spend a moment on verse 14, because in my travels I have come across those Christians who will repeat this verse every time they come together and every every time they leave one another. Uh, they'll repeat this verse, and if it doesn't become vain repetition, I think it's a, it's a warm thing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And when I travel in East Africa... Brethren will be departing one from another, oftentimes on a laborious journey back to their homes. And maybe we'll stand in a circle, or uh, maybe we'll hold hands or or something. And one will say, let's uh, say, the grace. And then they'll repeat this verse. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Notice here, the Lord Jesus Christ has grace for you. He's the judge. He's the Lord. Uh, God the Father has His love that He places in our hearts. We're not without resource. There's grace. That's what we need for whatever we need. Uh, There's the love of God, which is the more excellent way. And then he says, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one who helps us, the one who comes alongside of us, be with you all. And if we have God Almighty in our midst, if we have these things, what do we lack? We lack nothing. And here, of course, the epistle ends... Amen, so be it, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. So be it. I'm John Malone. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net.